Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. In his talk, The Portuguese Empire, Richard Thomas tells us the story of the first and last of the European empires. Built on the voyages and excellent seamanship of their explorers. Well, I want to talk today about the Portuguese Empire, uh, the origins of it, the development of it, the beginning much more on that and a little bit on the end of their empire. Because it includes the period from about 1415, 1415, that's a long time back, when Henry the Navigator took charge of all their explorations to the period about 1550, that was the, the beginning period, during which time they had rather quickly become the largest European empire and they were the first world trading empire. And they did remain fairly rich and fairly powerful for another 100 plus years thanks to the wealth generated by their activities. Their sailors, their explorers and their traders all playing a role. But not for the first time in history, Others, particularly the French, the Dutch and the British, they came along and trumped their efforts and stole their ideas and took over some of their settlements. And the period of decline from the 1660s is quite a long one. It was gradual at first, but then it speeded up after the end of the Brazilian part of their empire. But they did keep their African empire until 1975, much later than the winds of change, and it was not until 1999 that the last bit of their empire was handed over to the Chinese. This was, you know it, Macau. I'll give a quick summary of the end games, but I say I'm going to focus more on the earlier period, the first mere 350 years or so. The Age of Discovery is the first, in, in a sense, the most impressive one, where they suddenly launched forth in the early 15th century, exploring the near Atlantic, then around the coast of Africa, and then onwards around the Cape of Good Hope to Asia. It was an extraordinary achievement. The Second Empire, so Discovery, 1415, Madeira, 1420, so just rapidly, rapidly round the African coast. They reached India in 1498. Now, from 1494 onwards, Brazil became Portuguese, and the, the Third Empire really is their slaving empire in Africa, particularly Angola and Mozambique, when they became formalised as colonies. And I say the final period of decolonization I will cover briefly at the end. Almost more important to their empire were the trading settlements, not the big blocks of land. The trading part was the bit that kept them going for hundreds of years. It was not a land mass empire, it was the entrepôts and the trade routes. So when you're thinking about their empire, think about Goa, Malacca, Timor and Macau, rather than big chunks of geography like India or Indonesia. Now, to understand the rise of Portugal and their empire, we do need to know a bit about the development of the country itself. For most of its history, the provinces of what are now Portugal were the colony of some other empire, first the Romans, 
then the Visigoths, and then the Moors took over, and they were running most of Portugal for several hundred years. But in 1147, with help from the British, British archers, they got rid of the Moors out of Lisbon. And it is not well known that the first bishop of Lisbon was called Gilbert of Hastings. He was a British soldier on his way to the Holy Land and thought, I'd rather stay here and become bishop and enjoy life, which he did. And several hundreds of other British soldiers did the same thing. They then had to deal with Castile, which luckily for them, the Portuguese, were trying to get rid of the Moors. So they were keener on getting rid of the Moors than defeating Portugal. And the treaty with Castile in 1411 allowed them really to branch out. They were then able to more or less pull together as a country and focused on external issues. So in the early part of the 15th century, it was an independent country. It was not, fortunately for them, involved in the endless wars of a power, territory, dynastic succession, and of course religion, which affected Western Europe for the next several hundred years. It was also, ironically really, to their long-term advantage that they were located at the extreme end of Europe and therefore had no choice but to look outwards into the Atlantic. And the Portuguese kings and nobles were keen to expand trade with anyone, certainly keen not to lose the trade links they had had under the Moors with Moorish territories. But the Moors controlled the southern Mediterranean, North Africa, and indeed the trade with the west coast of Africa across the Sahara, and of course the Middle East, the Ottoman Empire later on. So the Portuguese found their access to the old trade links blocked, and the slave trade and the gold trade with parts of Africa blocked, and the overland trade with the Indies blocked. So they had really no option but to go by sea. When they captured Ceuta, they thought, well, that's all right, we've kind of found a Muslim town and we'll carry on trading with the Muslims. Well, the Muslims then moved the trade links to Ceuta to some other place in North Africa, so it didn't really work. So they decided to go by sea. Easy to say, but we were lucky that they had Henry the Navigator to take up this challenge. Cometh the hour, cometh the man, that sort of thing. He was nicknamed the Navigator. He was the seventh child and the third son of the king, so he was very unlikely to become king, but he was given the task of opening up routes to the Atlantic and to the west coast of Africa. It was not just a question of sending off ships in the vague hope they might return. It was a major planning logistical exercise and very expensive. But Henry, as a young man, had taken part in the capture of Ceuta, so he knew that the, the Moors were formidable not, not so much enemies. The Moors didn't want these upstart Portuguese messing about with them. I mean, they were not important to the Moors, who were a big Middle East-wide, Africa-wide series of empires. But they were Christian, which put them against the Moors, and he was made Grand Master of the Order of Christ, who were the successors to the Knights Templar. And this was an extremely rich organization and gave Henry funding. The anti-Muslim purpose of the exploration gave it credibility. And so did Henry's personal interest in finding the fabled land of Prester John, otherwise known in history as Ethiopia, which was, as we know, an isolated Christian kingdom. And Ethiopia could not be reached overland because it meant going through Moorish territories. So he had royal status, money, a religious motive, and a keen personal interest. So he got to work. He was further incentivized by being given 
trade monopolies in the places he, or in reality his sailors, discovered. Every two or three years, the sailors would send an expedition out, go to where they've been before, go a bit further, and two years later go a bit further too. They gradually got all the way around Africa in kind of two-year jumps. And by the time Henry died in 1460, they'd got as far as Sierra Leone. Now, Henry's contribution extended beyond funding. He encouraged experienced navigators and mapmakers to work for him and oversaw the redesign of the Carac into the Caravelle. The Portuguese Carac, it was basically a transport ship which could be turned into a fighting ship, but it was used to Mediterranean-type waters, had square sails and could not cope with the Atlantic winds and the rough seas. The Caravelle was smaller, it was neater and therefore slightly more seaworthy. It was about 60 feet long. Now, 60 feet long is minute, but that is why it was able to manage in rougher seas. A two, sometimes three masts, and a lateen or triangular sail, which allowed for tacking, and tacking is the key to these explorations. So sailing with the wind was what it could do. For its time, it was pretty fast and pretty agile and relatively waterproof. It could not carry large cargoes, but could travel long distances. And when traders needed bigger ships for more trade, they basically merged the Caravelle and the Carac together, which became known as the Nau. Their experience in shipbuilding, navigation, seamanship, helped the Portuguese to become the first European naval power. Now, all these changes and developments were needed to navigate safely around the African coast, and this took time. Uh, Henry funded this process, encouraged seamen, and he is remembered primarily for this drive, and he deserves to be remembered. Cape Bougedor doesn't look like any bigger outcrop bend in the coast than any other, but it is because beyond it was the great unknown. It was not clear if you got past it, which was not so difficult, whether you'd ever be able to return. And when they got near Bougedor, they had to avoid a 20-mile sandbar and head out into the frequently very treacherous seas, partly because of the sandbar, and often into strong easterly winds. Not only this, of course, they might drop off the end of the world. For in the middle of the 15th century, the papacy was still claiming the sun and planets went round the earth and that the earth was flat. However, 1427, one of Henry's captains, Jill Eanes, was the first European to pass to Cape Bougedor and return. Henry had told Eanes before he went that 14 captains had tried and failed to return, so off he goes, good luck. When he did return, Henry didn't believe him, so sent him off again. <laughs> this time he brought back some sand and a desert flower to prove that he'd gone around the corner, as it were. Now, if you're interested in ships and sea and all that jazz, you have to deal with the issue of the ocean gyres. It was the difficult bit. Going down was fairly easy because you've got the currents going down. But to come back, you've got to go out and up and around. And they didn't know that until they tested it a few times, but at least 14 captains tested it and, and died. So circulation of currents that they could not return by the usual route, we had to go out into the Atlantic and turn on what was called the Volta de Mar. It's sometimes translated the turn of the sea or return from the sea. I think technically it's turn of the sea, but it meant you could return from the sea. Now, once the Portuguese had understood and mastered this, their exploration gathered pace. So when they got south, 
into the South Atlantic, they then discovered the gyre goes the other way. It took them quite a long time to work out that as well. Captains gradually realized they had to go way out into the South Atlantic as we're driving down to the right, and then take a sharp turn to come along the Roaring Forties to the Cape of Good Hope. And so what you do is bump into Brazil on the way down, which we will come to in a minute. It took a great deal of nerve to go the wrong way, apparently, pointing in the wrong direction for weeks, not overnight, not days. I think three months it took some to do that before doing a sharp left turn and going across the bottom of the Cape of Good Hope. 200 years later, one Dutch sea captain lost his nerve two days early before his instruction said, now you can turn after X numbers of miles. And he turned and ended up on the west coast of what is now South Africa, 60 miles north of Cape Town. Now, it seems to me that's pretty accurate, but he was officially reprimanded for not following instructions. When Henry and his sailors, the, the initial bunch, had gone around Africa, they soon realised they'd gone beyond the, the desert, which they were familiar with from North Africa, into forest and savannah. And they also realised they'd gone beyond the Muslim empires, and they had found people with whom they could do trade. The open sea, not the land, was their route to West African gold, the West and Southern African slave trade, and ultimately the Asian spice trade. So this was the Portuguese doing this by themselves, bravely into completely uncharted territory. So as I've said before, the voyages continued after Henry. Every year a new group of ship would leave Portugal, the task of going a bit further down the coast. In the two years between 44 and 6, 40 vessels sailed from Lagos in Portugal. Now that gives you an idea whether one in Nigeria got its name. And they were looking to the kingdoms of West Africa for gold and slaves. And one of the places they found in Ghana was the supply of gold and the Elmina, for Elmina means the mine from which minerals could be extracted. It was Portuguese for 150 years, then it was seized by the Dutch, and then it became British in 1872. More gold was discovered in what is now Ghana. Fort was built, and it's still there. They also found rich fishing, especially of shrimps of Cameroon. The word shrimp in Portuguese is Cameroon. So the country is named after the shrimps, which is a fairly unusual name. As they went further on down the coast, they found other people with whom they could do trade. And that was in 1482, I think, they discovered the kingdom with the queen of Nzinga in the Congo. And they established a mutually beneficial trading arrangement with the queen and her followers for over a century. And it was all looking quite good, as they did with the kingdom of Benin and the kingdoms along the coast of West Africa. This was working as a relatively equal trading relationship until the slave trade took off big time till it expanded and became much less a joint enterprise and more of a takeover. These places, particularly the Congo, were obviously useful refueling and resting places for the Portuguese sailors on their way around to India. Now another key date in all this is Bartholomew Dias' 1488 when he rounded the Cape and went around the Cape up a bit to Mossel Bay. Now that ship is in Mossel Bay and I've been on it and it's not a lot bigger than this room. A bit longer and narrower. It's, it's extraordinarily small. 
But Dias's point was to prove that the Atlantic was not landlocked. There was a sea route to India and to its riches, which were, of course, spices. Uh, ten years after that, Vasco da Gama made it all the way to Calicut in India with an Omani guide, which is always left off the basic coverage. It was not just a European adventure. The Omanis had been trading with Zanzibar and around to India for a thousand years, following the tides, as it were. When Jillines and Dias can be reasonably given the title of explorer or adventurer or brave sailor, but Vasco da Gama turned it into business. He was a businessman. His job was to collect spices from the Indies for Portugal to make him and Portugal rich. The others would negotiate with the local kings if in doubt Vasco da Gama would open fire. So he was a very aggressive and very violent explorer. He wasn't the only one, but he led the opening up of Asia and the spice route. And he brought back his ships to Portugal. They weren't very big ships, as I said, but the load of mostly pepper in his cargo paid, it is said, three times over for the costs of the exploration. So certainly, suddenly, a profitable business was available to the Portuguese. And at this time, only the Portuguese. Now, we know the dates of these voyages in some detail, not just because captains, as they still have to, set good records, you know, navigational records, details of what's going on on board. They kept very good records, but the explorers left crosses to mark their safe arrival and to show that they were there and sort of were putting their marker down, literally, to say this is now a place, not of Portuguese territory, but Portuguese influence. We, the Portuguese, were here first, so you, the Dutch and the British following up, go away, because this is ours. Not that that had long-term impact. So these were extraordinary, complicated and brave and brilliant bits of navigation. That's the bit we must not let go of. Now, as we know, Spain, by which we mean Castile, was flexing its muscles and gradually pushing the Moors further south. And by 1492, they'd got rid of them. And they noticed that their upstart neighbor, their cheeky little cousins in Portugal, really rather successfully exploring the Atlantic, the African coast, and Asia. So Christopher Columbus comes along and says, I can get to the Spice Islands by a different route. The Portuguese, not stupidly, the Portuguese said, well, we've already got to Asia by the sea route, and we're the only ones that know the way, because we're, we're keeping our maps pretty quiet as long as we can. And the English and the French turned them down. I think mainly they turned them down, the English, because we were in the middle of our first civil war, the Wars of the Roses and all that. So the English and the French turned them down. The Spanish, who had nothing going for them except they just got rid of the Moors, said, yes, off you go. And as we know, Spain was put on the imperial map, and they found fabulous wealth, not particularly in the Indies, but in Central and Southern America. So Spain and Portugal were suddenly at, at odds over who was in charge of the world and all this exploring and the various bits of territory. So they discussed with the Pope and they agreed, after much debate, to divide the worlds outside Europe between them. The Portuguese would have the world to the east and the Spanish would have to the west. The treaty was agreed at Tordesillas and it's completely ridiculous in its sort of arrogance. The Pope Portuguese and Spanish divide the world, but that is what they did. But the point is, both sides accepted it, uh, and the British and the French and the Dutch were not really in the game yet. The key point that follows, and I'm now moving on to a bit of time on Brazil, is that nobody really knew what Brazil was. The Portuguese had bumped into it, 
and they knew there was land there and rivers and so on. And they, they wanted to make sure the Amazon or some of it was in their territory. But they'd not really settled it. They'd not done much business there. They'd probably go ashore for water and find a few Indians, which they would either ignore or kill. But then the French began to take a rather unhealthy interest in the timber, which comes from the Amazon. So the Portuguese said, the Pope said, this is ours. And so they began to assert their claim to Brazil. And the Amazon was on their side, but not much of what later became Brazil. But Spain was not interested in that. They were interested in the Caribbean and the bits they discovered that were full of gold and silver further north. So they kind of said, there's the Amazon is there, you can have the river basin of the Amazon. What nobody quite knew is the river basin of the Amazon is Brazil and more. So they were quite lucky with that, which everybody accepted. So Brazil became a very large Portuguese colony for over 300 years. But in reality, very little of it was actually occupied or controlled by them. They built some colonial towns and established a capital in El Salvador in 1549. The story of Brazil is a long and complicated one, but it needs another whole talk, which is not part of today's proceedings. But what was interesting, it was a place from which the French originally, and then the Portuguese, extracted Brazil wood. And from that timber, you get a very good, powerful dye. And apparently, that timber is particularly good at making violins. Minerals were discovered, and sugar was grown in increasing quantities. To develop this, they needed labor to do the backbreaking work in the mines and on these rapidly expanding sugar plantations. And sugar production, if you know anything about it, is labor intensive, hacking down the cane, squeezing out the sugar. It's just hard work. And the first source of labor, obviously, was the local Indians, who were treated not very well. They died in very large numbers from overwork, from brutal treatment, from malnutrition, and particularly from European diseases like smallpox. So as early as the mid-16th century, 1500s, there was a labor shortage. What was the quickest way of getting cheap labor? Bringing in slaves from Africa. And this they duly did. And then the need for slaves was greatly increased by the vast deposits of gold and diamonds found in Minas Gerais in 1693. The slave trade is a vast and complicated story. It is said that about 4 million people went to Brazil, a lot of them from the Congo and what is now Angola, a lot of them from West Africa, some from East Africa where they had their trading ports. But the second point to make is that many more went to Brazil than went to North America or any other location. So we're talking about the history of slavery. The place that should be focused on is Brazil. This unsurprisingly caused the relationship with the Congo, which is the Congo and further south, partly what is now Angola. It soon broke down their trading relationship because the Portuguese demanded more and more slaves. Enslaving conquered tribes, which is what the Noir did to the people north of them, and what the Congo people did to other tribes in the region. Enslaving other tribes is fine. Enslaving your own people is another thing altogether. And rebellions, which there were, of course made things worse. The Portuguese said, well, they're rebelling against us, they're nasty, troublesome people. What is the best punishment? Ah, oh, how about slavery? So it almost made it easier for them to feel okay about collecting slaves. So the slave trade from 
the middle of the 17th century went through the roof. It became a nice little earn out for lots of ships' captains with not too much morality to a major international business for 200 years. Now, in Brazil, the coastal area in this area is really the only bits that were developed. The bits with the most valuable metals certainly were well within the official Portuguese-agreed territories. Rio, 1565, Bahia, 1549, Recife, 1535. So a few places had been settled and made into kind of colonial headquarters. If you have any knowledge or experience of the British colonial period, this would be the district commissioner's office or the provincial commissioner's office with all the bits and pieces that go along with colonial management. But out in the country, almost nothing was done except finding mines and exploiting them as fast as they could. Now, it was still a very small portion of what became Brazil. But these gold and diamonds in 1693 led to a very significant inflow, not surprisingly, of Portuguese migrants. Suddenly people began to arrive because there was money to be made. And the gold boom really only lasted for a century at most, but it did help pay for the development of a few coastal cities and encourage the opening up of parts of the interior. Some of the interior was opened up by an extraordinary group of freelance explorers, often of mixed Indian and Portuguese ancestry, called bandeirantes. Now, bandeirantes does not translate into bandits, but actually it's a pretty accurate description of what they were like. They were encouraged by the government, they didn't control more than a few coastal towns, to go into the countryside, look for slave labour, look for gold and silver, and open up whatever they could. Their brutal methods were resisted by the Jesuits who tried to protect the Indians from their worst outrages. However, the response from the Portuguese government which still attempted to run Brazil from Lisbon, was to suppress the relatively humane Jesuits by dissolving them in 1759. But moving swiftly on to the 1790s, 250 years after the first settlements. There were traders, settlers, miners, and some administrators. But the first lot, increasingly in open revolt against Lisbon. Declining yields of gold had lowered the tax take. And Lisbon needed the tax take as it got used to it. It wanted to use the tax take to pay itself, to build castles, to build churches, and so on. So their response was to raise the tax. And the rebels were greatly encouraged by the example of the Americans, who had successfully started their independence campaign against the British, also started by a rise in local taxes. Brazil's move to independence was speeded up, ironically, by Napoleon, who in 1808 invaded Portugal, and the Portuguese court, the royal court, with British help on the ships, moved to Brazil. So for a while, the Portuguese empire was run by Brazil, which quickly became the most important place in the empire, including Portugal. And I thought to myself, well, that's exactly what would have happened if America had stayed in the empire. They would have been the key place we would have been a satellite, even though it was our empire. And so this weakness led inexorably to a break with Portugal in 1822. And after a few battles, some fighting and lots of grand posturing, Brazil became formally independent in 1825. There was some fighting, but not a lot, because the first king, 
Dom Pedro was the son of the King of Portugal. He'd been sent out to Portugal, really, to act as his kind of agent, really the acting King of Brazil. They didn't hate his father. It wasn't really a particularly bloody war of independence. Lots of posturing and so on, because the local leadership were of Portuguese origin, the Portuguese settlers who were running the place. But they didn't like being taxed, they didn't like being told what to do from overseas, and they didn't like the complete lack of knowledge about what was happening locally. The parallels with the British and the Americans are very strong indeed. Now, as an aside, they were assisted in their campaign for independence by Thomas Cochrane, one of Nelson's more dashing and successful captains. He'd helped Chile gained their independence from Spain and was commissioned by the Brazilian rebels to help them get their independence. He did this in exchange for a great deal of money. And his role was significant, no doubt about that. He liberated a number of coastal cities which were controlled by a small number of Portuguese officials, governors, soldiers, traders, but this is the headquarters group not the people out in the villages or the bush or up the rivers or digging gold. These were the officialdom. And he would arrive in a ship, because it was all he did, the coastal cities, he'd arrive in a ship, mostly British sailors, and say, more or less, look, I would surrender, if I was you, surrender to me, because, and then go back to Portugal as fast as you possibly can, because the rebel navy is just behind me. It wasn't. And we're well-behaved British sailors. I just can't account for what they'll do. It could be dreadful. You know, women won't be safe. So a number of settlements listened carefully to what he said, packed their bags, got onto the ships, and fled back to Portugal. In that sense, he liberated from Portugal, for Brazil, several important cities. When they had left, having got to Maranao, he emptied what was left of their treasuries and headed back to England, loaded up with gold, and the British authorities were not sure whether to treat him as a pirate or whether to treat him as a hero. Being British, they treated him as a hero. He was pretty disgraced in British terms by then, but he came with ships loaded with gold, so he was a hero. And the people he left behind had to accept, actually mostly willingly, that they were now not Portuguese anymore, they were Brazilian. The independence of Brazil made the Portuguese empire rather a minor one. They had lost a vast country, but the key losses were the trading profits and the taxes. Although relatively friendly relations existed and trade between Portugal and Brazil continued, Portugal never really recovered from the loss of the easy pickings from Brazil. So 1825, the Portuguese empire kind of dropped two notches to a rather minor empire. Africa. They only controlled the coastal bits. They didn't control the inland bits. They traded across what is now Zambia, and, and there was a, an attempt to make that entirely Portuguese until the British said, no, we want to be able to move from the Cape to Cairo, so we're not letting you take over that. But it was a close-run thing, in a way. Their empire really means Angola and Mozambique, and it lasted longer than their Brazilian empire. It was important to Portugal, but not as rich. And its story brings even less credit to Portugal as an imperial power. I mentioned at the beginning that the relations with the Congo Kingdom were reasonably cordial. And they did provide some modern technology. Guns, of course, but builders, the Queen converted to Christianity, so priests were allowed to build churches. And the main exports began as minerals, but soon became 
slaves for Brazil. Uh, and the Portuguese wanted more and more slaves, and that was what broke relations down and became a rather bloodthirsty takeover. If you don't give us slaves and you rebel, we will enslave you for re rebelling. So it was catch-22. Now, some of the slaves, as I said earlier, came from other parts of Africa, particularly the kingdom of Benin, with whom the Portuguese traded for almost 400 years. The Portugal and Benin were almost equal partners and didn't fight each other, nor was the trading of slaves forced upon Benin as it was upon the Congo. Equally, of course, had the Portuguese marched towards Benin, they would have quickly been overwhelmed by fighters because the Beninian were very powerful warriors and malaria would have sorted out the few that the Benin soldiers had not sorted out. So it had to be, in a way, an equal relationship. The mask of Queen Idia, which was used to publicise Festac 77, the African Festival of Arts, in 1977. It's a beautiful ivory carving, 300 years old. Ivory lasts. Metal inserts don't last, they melted away. Top knot consists of bearded Portuguese soldiers in the headpiece. You could almost argue the Portuguese were being mocked by the people of Benin, not they weren't the big enemy and they weren't the nasty, savage exploiters. So different relationship from the one we're used to hearing in our history books. Trade with Angola and Mozambique was much less equal. The Portuguese stripped them of their main assets, which was its people, and they did very little to develop either of them until after the slave trade ended. They explored, looked for minerals, trade opportunities, but built little except a few forts and churches along the coast. A 19th century commentator described the interior of Angola as a howling wilderness. The slave trade ended officially in 1836, but in fact continues until 1880 when slavery was finally abolished in Brazil. Up till then, plenty of ambitious sea captains would willingly take the risk of collecting slaves and taking them off to Brazil and North America for profit. The West African squadron of the British Navy spent dozens of years intercepting some of these ships, settling many of them in Sierra Leone or Liberia. And so the slave trade was abolished by us in 1836, but it didn't really end until the end of the century. And during that time, a lot more slaves were sent. And that was one of the reasons why the treaties of Berlin triggered the scramble for Africa to actually settle and sort out Africa. And the interiors of Mozambique, as I've said before, and Angola were not directly controlled by Portugal during the middle part of the century, but they had to be after the scramble for Africa, because if they weren't, they wouldn't be able to claim ownership of it. I won't spend too much of my time going on about the scramble for Africa, which is another of my topics I've done it before. But every time I look at about British, French, Portuguese, French, British, American, French, British, French, German, British, German, French, Spanish, where are the Spanish somewhere? Well, the Spanish. I mean, this is not the way you should create countries, but it was getting in before the other lot got in. Most of our imperial 
excitements were caused by a desire to keep the French out. <laughs> um, and as I say, Zambia, which does have a lot of copper, was made British to keep the Portuguese from joining up. And you know why most of the copper is there in Virgin Congo and not in Zambia? It's because the Belgians sent a geologist to negotiate the border and the British sent a major general. <laughs> As a result of which, most of the copper is in what is now Zaire. The Scramble for Africa Treaty of Berlin isn't an event, obviously. It's a process. The, the European powers were gradually moving inland a bit. They were trying to stop the slave trade. And this was one of Britain's fairly unheralded and positive stories about the West Africa squadron trying to stop ships taking slaves continuously. Similarly, in Zanzibar, and stopping the slaves from being collected from the hinterland to Zanzibar to, to the Middle East, Livingston, etc., was startled to find the slave trade was still going on. So in the 80s and 80s and 90s, Portugal and the other countries were told at the Treaty of Berlin, if you want to claim any particular piece of geography as your country, your sphere of influence, your colony, you need evidence of boots on the ground, you need to be there. So Portugal's main interest before this, during this, after this, was basically extraction. And to help them do this in Angola and Mozambique, they encouraged settlers to come and farm. Ranching is a better word than farming. Ranch in very large tracts of land, inland from the coastal strips. Some of these patches of geography, some of these ranches were as big as English counties, the Prazos. Now, they were essentially slaved-worked concessions. The resident Portuguese landowner was the law who could, if he wished, imprison or execute any black labourer who disobeyed him or even annoyed him. And this was obviously a continuation of slavery or worse by other means. So Portugal's colonies were not the source of great wealth, but they liked being a European colonial power and having an empire definitely gave them status. But there was a pretty messy end to their African empire. The period of, of effective control of the two main ones, Angola and Mozambique, did not end in the 1960s when the wind of change blew through Africa. It was a poor and marginal European country which needed the money it extracted from Africa and also, must be said, needed a place to which they could send the unemployed, the, the younger sons, and any assorted riffraff could be sent off to the colonies. In the middle of the 20th century, the territories became provinces of Portugal and sent representatives to the Cortes in Lisbon. The French still do this for a few offshore islands. This meant that when the winds of change became a howling gale, Portugal insisted that they couldn't make Angola and Mozambique independence because they were integral parts of Portugal. Nonsense, but they sort of wanted to believe it, so they did. Obviously, the complete lack of investment in health, education, infrastructure meant that none of the Portuguese African colonies were ready for independence. When it finally came in 1974-75, it was a disaster. And it's worth noting that the end came primarily because of the post-Salazar economic collapse in Portugal, not particularly because of any events in Africa. Now, there were independence movements, of course, they were helped by the Russians. Angola's government was helped by South Africa to keep apartheid in place. But eventually the Portuguese 
military realised that the costs of keeping the African territories far outweighed the benefits. This was the military, the intelligentsia, people that could do sums and read, not necessarily the same as the government. Most sensible Portuguese greeted the independence of their African colonies with relief, tempered by the very important fact that there was something like half a million altogether, three quarters of a million even, from everywhere, white refugees, or retornados, from Africa. This was not an easy task to integrate them. I have a trivial pursuit question. How did Salazar, the Portuguese dictator who wanted to keep the empire, die after 35 years in power? Answer, he was injured by a collapsing deck chair. (laughs) If you notice the dates, he died two years. He was sort of overthrown. He'd gone senile. He was sort of overthrown, and he died a bit later. Very unsurprisingly, Mozambique and Angola endured major civil wars after independence, for which they have hardly emerged today. Northern Mozambique is essentially a war zone with Islamist insurgents helping poor and exploited locals against the government. This is fairly recent and it's very nasty. Uh, Mozambique was looking quite good for the previous decade. Angola, however, is entirely now tied up with oil, and that means the Chinese. The Chinese have all the oil concessions and all the infrastructure contracts, and if you go there, they are everywhere, and they're in the driving seat. They build a couple of nice buildings, and then they take over the latest concession promenade, which, when I first went there, was just a crumbling, rough beach area. Then it became a, a beautiful and a walk, two or three miles around the edge of the city, built by the Chinese as a present to the government. What's fascinating is, A, it's beautiful, and B, if you walk one block, say you're to the hotel, let's, let's go and have a drink, you're at the back of the hotel, you're in the slums. So one block behind, you see just how poor most of Angola is. It should be a relatively rich country, but 95% remain poor. A few remain very rich. Former president's daughter was recently the richest woman in Africa. So, moving on to Asia. The story of the Portuguese in Asia is quite different from the story in Africa. So, again, I'll cover the highlights, make a few general points. Vasco da Gama's journey around the corner, Melindian Mombasa, Zanzibar, and across to Goa, Calicut, and India. Later on, they would have bumped into Oman and over, because that would have followed the trade winds. So, in 1498, da Gama reached Calicut, which was already, of course, a spice port, trading with the Middle East and across overland to Europe through areas controlled by Muslims. That was the point of whole original exploration. So after he reached Vasco da Gama, reached India, the speed with which the Portuguese moved on into East Asia, given the ships they had and the complete lack of navigational experience, except for Omani and other pilots, what they did again is truly remarkable. Vasco da Gama reached India. A few years later, built a settlement in Goa, a trading post in Malacca, East Timor, China. 10, 20 years from bumping into India to forming trading posts another couple of thousand miles further on. This was not easy to do, but they did do it. They built a fort in Mombasa in 1507. They took over Goa in 1510 and stayed until 1961. They developed trade links with the Malabar coast from 1503 onwards. 
trade post in Malacca, 1511. The main point to make is that they did so much in about five years. Extraordinary explosion of exploring. And these were contracts and negotiated deals with local rulers. Now, a lot of these local rulers were Muslims, not all of them. So they had to explain that we may be Portuguese, but we're friends, really. Some places they had to fight hard to get concessions. But the main way they were able to do it is by saying to one prince, I know you hate that prince up there, we'll help you fight him if you will give us a trading concession. So a lot of it was allying with one lot to fight the other lot, and that is how they ended up with a lot of trading concessions. 1570, they'd already arrived in Japan, they were given land to build the port of Nagasaki. Nagasaki didn't exist until the Portuguese built it. To add to that, Francis Xavier proposed a Christianizing mission to Asia, to India particularly, in around 1542. So you add trade, you add contracts to buy and sell stuff with rulers, you add Christianity. This was a fairly serious European invasion of not big countries, but lots of trading areas around Asia. Now, not all of this was plain sailing. Some naval battles had to be fought. The Ottomans around the Red Sea were very annoyed about these Portuguese upstarts, and there were some fairly serious naval battles. The Gulf region had to be secured. But the, the Portuguese, of course, were brilliant sailors and willing to be uh, vicious soldiers. They didn't mess about. If it was necessary to burn down a stockade or kill everybody, they would do so. But the point I'm trying to make is not everybody was pleased to see them. Some people were, some were not. They had, for a while, major problems with the Chinese, even though they had a long-term settlement in Macau from about 1550-something. They got there earlier, spent 30, 40 years building up trade, and were given the right to settle long-term. But the Chinese occasionally were not so pleased to see them, and for some reason the Chinese objected to their children being taken and sold as slaves in Europe. It was forbidden by the King of Portugal in 1571, but he had to forbid it again in 1724, suggesting the first ban had not worked. So lots of places were opened up for trade by Portugal. No big land masses, but lots of small entrepôts. Now, the success of the Asian trade and the great wealth to be generated, of course, alerted the other naval powers in Europe, and they rapidly joined in, first with the Dutch and a bit later the British. The Dutch took over most of the Indonesian archipelago, except East Timor, and the British ended up controlling most of India, except Goa, as well as, as we know, Ceylon and Malaysia. Malacca is actually one of the more interesting little sub-stories of the whole big story. It provides us with a mini case study. It's on a critical position on the west coast of Malaysia, and it's a good place to sort of draw breath, having come across the Indian Ocean, before you go down the straits and the narrow gap with lots of pirates, incidentally. The Portuguese controlled Malacca from 1511 to 1641, what's 130 years, and they were pushed out by the Dutch. There's Dutch again. The Dutch controlled it while developing links with the main Spice Islands, now Indonesia. Then along came the British, and they began to develop Singapore, and then they pushed the Dutch out, initially in 1795, and finally in 1825. Despite the Dutch and the British, Portugal was able to continue with their small but important trade centres, Goa, East Timor, Macau, etc., 
into the 19th and 20th centuries. And although they never acquired land and empire in Asia, they did continue to be a middling trading nation. And they did continue to leave an impact in some of the places they went to, obviously the language in Indonesia. But just to refer back to Malacca, first time I went there, which was the 1980s, there was a thing called, was it Portuguese village, Portuguese town, where clearly there was Portuguese influence in the architecture. And there was a restaurant at the end of a little land bit. And the restaurant had an extension, and you went along there and caught the fish. And if, what sort of fish do you want? Yes, please. They'd go and catch it and bring it back and cook it. So it was a fish restaurant. It was brilliant. And I subsequently went, and that whole area had been built up into a housing development, and the Portuguese had kind of disappeared. But I also remember seeing a church, a Catholic church in Malacca, obviously it must have been a Sunday, it was full to the brim of people, very enthusiastic people praying and singing. And they were clearly the people in there were from Malacca, but they were also mostly of mixed race. So the Portuguese influence continued in Malacca until the 1970s and 80s. On my last visit, but I saw no evidence whatsoever of any Portuguese influence, basically been, by expansion, had been overwhelmed, but the Muslims were beginning in Malaysia to exert their authority. So the Portuguese history was being not obliterated, just pushed to one side. In some ways very sad, in some ways quite inevitable. But it does show that their original impact was pretty profound. So their empire in Asia kept going. And after the Second World War, when all the empires of Asia were ruined by the Japanese 1940 onwards. After the war, the empires were technically restored, but they were obviously unsustainable, not just because the European nations were completely economically ruined and lost the appetite for doing it. The locals saw, well, if the Japanese can march into Singapore over a long weekend, surely we can push out these Europeans who's been over a couple of hundred years and we thought they're here forever, but we can push them out too. So after a fairly unpleasant period in both Malaysia and Indonesia, they became independent of their colonial powers. However, because Portugal had no big land masses, they hung in there for a lot longer, in fact, as long as they possibly could. Their departure from Asia was inevitable. It took place gradually in a series of minor, rather low-key events. When India took Goa, in 1961, after about 450 years. The Portuguese referred to it as temporarily occupied and continued to welcome elected representatives to the Cortes in Lisbon. East Timor was, handed over would be wrong, was given up by the Portuguese in 1975, immediately annexed by Indonesia, and then suffered a bloody civil war. East Timor is now very poor, very fragile, dependent on international aid, and is really a non-viable state. Macau, on the other hand, carried on as a trading centre for a lot longer, and was handed over to the Chinese in 1999. Without the agro, which attended the handover of Hong Kong to the British two years earlier. Now, there are a number of reasons for this, but perhaps the main reason is that the British mattered a bit, so the Chinese had to be seen to be winning, whereas the Portuguese didn't matter, so the handover was quite a peaceful, low-key affair. So anyway, in conclusion, it does seem strange to be saying that Portugal was a world-class European empire in Asia in the 16th century, and then to say that it has lost its importance within 100 years. 
But it is the case, and it is what happened. A couple of hundred years of being really rather important and serious, but then another couple of hundred years of being rather minor and unimportant. But the loss of Brazil in 1822 was the one that killed it off, and the impoverished state of its African territories meant that it was not a very impressive empire at all for the last hundred years of its existence. But because of handing over Macau in 1999, it was in fact the longest lasting of all the European empires. A few general points to make. And I said the point about that is also, remember the ships they were sailing in in the early period. The first period was impressive. And we mustn't underestimate the bravery and the early explorers and the, the traders and the, the languages they had to learn and the, the ships they had to sail in. So they were brave, tough people. Uh, they made very significant advances in, in navigation, ship design, cartography. They were started by the Portuguese. The Dutch picked up from the Portuguese and moved all of that further forward. And we, being British, we stole from everybody else after they had perfected their designs. They sailed in. 406 tons, 36 metres long. I mean, it's extraordinarily small. That is what they did all of this sailing in. And the determination of the settlers and, the, and the, many of the missionaries that went, that does need to be acknowledged. But unfortunately, the scales were overbalanced, unbalanced by the exploitative system, which was at its inhuman worst in the Brazilian slave trade and the treatment of the workforce and the, the feudal estates in Mozambique and Angola was hardly better. Now, there's a question, actually. How did they use all this amazing wealth they extracted from their colonies? Their biggest long-term mistake was that they, the kings used the money to build highly decorated churches and palaces rather than building their economy and developing an entrepreneurial middle class. It does mean that Portugal is a great place to go as a tourist, but it does also mean they don't have much of a modern economy. Now, there are many reasons why the Industrial Revolution took place in the UK rather than Portugal, but this is one of them. They did not invest in inventors and risk-takers. They invested in churches and palaces. So finally, like us, they have a commonwealth, but it's growing, ironically, and people want to join, partly because the Portugal is quite determined to keep its international relations going and therefore has money on offer. Perhaps not quite the same as the Commonwealth, to which we do not make massive grants, but people do join in. It's more of a club. That's a, kind of an aid agency, really. There are nine members of the Lusophone group, 32 associates and observers, and altogether 270 million people. And others are trying to join it. Portugal, a country with a long history, impressive history. Sailors, merchant, empire builders have played an important role. And because of the stuff they left behind, it's well worth a visit to buy port, if nothing else. So thank you very much. This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.